Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. He had no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. But, uh, well, hey, I hope you all are also having a, a wonderful morning. I, of course, am so thankful to, uh, to be with you all again. And uh, as you well know, by now we are, of course, continuing our dive into the book of Hebrews. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, the author really has not been holding his punches when speaking to his audience, a, a group that mostly consisted predominantly of, of Jewish Christians. And as he was beginning to explain the role of Jesus as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he, he kind of pumps the brakes, right? And he says, he essentially says, you know, hold, hold on, guys. This is, this is some, some deep stuff. But you have been lazy. You've been lazy in your faith, and you are still swimming in the kiddie pool when you should really be ready to swim in the deep end. And you should, you should already know and be teaching this stuff about Jesus and Melchizedek, but you are still needing to be taught the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And then in the first half of chapter 6, he essentially says to them, it's, it's time to move on. He says it's time to grow up from the basics of Christianity. And listen, there are those who think themselves to be Christians, who have proclaimed themselves to be Christian, but as time goes on, they they don't grow and they don't produce good fruit and they actually show themselves to not have true saving faith and they end up just just falling away. But then he says, but but you, speaking to his audience, but, but you are different. He essentially says, I believe you all are true believers. And not only that, but you can be sure of your salvation. You don't don't have to be afraid. But that assurance of your hope should not make you lazy in your faith, but it should make you zealous in your faith. It should make you feel free to, to move forward in your relationship with God. And it should motivate you to be like those giants of the faith who, through patience and reliance on God, inherited the promises of God. He's really wanting to, to encourage them. And so this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is really just, just one big message of encouragement. 
And to be honest with you, after the last couple sermons, I'm glad that this is what this passage is all about. But it's an encouragement, as we will see in, in verse 18. It's an encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. And friends, I pray that if you are a believer, that this message is just a breath of fresh air for you. So many of us, especially in the world that we live in, with all the different things going on, with the different difficulties each of us have in our lives, we're, we're a people in need of encouragement. But the encouragement that we truly need, friends, is not a, a, a trite, hey, you can do it, buddy. Or, or just hang in there. Just, just take it one day at a time. Or you know what? You're, you're good enough. You can, you can do this. That's not the encouragement that we need. The encouragement that we really need is one that is tied to the promise of heaven that has been given to us by the great unchanging I Am. Now the way that the author communicates to us this encouragement is by giving us an example of someone his readers and by extension us should, should seek to imitate and that person is none other than the pivotal Old Testament figure of Abraham. But before we go further, please pray with me. Lord, I thank you that we can be here all together. But Lord, we need you. Lord, we just got done singing about how much we need you, and that includes right now. Lord, we need you to, to help our minds not wander or go astray as we look into your word. Lord, we, we need you to, to help take these truths that are found in Scripture and, and place them on our heart and, and convict us of the things that are true. Lord, I need you to, to communicate and, and make clear those things that in my, in my flesh struggle to make clear. So Lord, I pray that... that Throughout this sermon, we rely on your power, not on ourselves. So, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit is our guide. We pray this in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. Okay, well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And I want to read verses 11 through 15. I want us to kind of start back just a little bit so we can have a better kind of flow of thought of the author. And so we're going to be reading verses 11 through 15 to begin with. And it says, And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, one of the most remarkable things, I think, about Abraham, the one from whom the people of Israel came to be, is that his whole relationship that he had with God really revolved around promises. It revolved around promises. And every major interaction that Abraham had with God involved a promise. 
And this is clearly the case with Abraham's first encounter with God all the way back in Genesis 12. And I think we have that verse when, when he was still called Abram. Verses 1 through 3 of Genesis 12 says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. There's that promise. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this was an incredible promise, a a remarkable promise. He is being told to to leave the only place that he has ever known as home to some some distant foreign land that he knew nothing about. But if if he does this, God promises him that he will make his name great, that he will be a blessing, and ultimately that through him all of the families of the earth will be blessed, which is to be understood that he would have this vast amount of descendants. Now the thing is, I'm not sure if I mentioned this or not, but Abraham at this point was 75 years old. And not only was he 75 years old, but his wife Sarah was equally as old and also barren. They had no children and no prospect of of having children. And so this promise to Abraham probably seemed like an impossibility. But again and again, God would reiterate this promise to Abraham. Even when when Abraham had moments of doubt that God would actually fulfill his promise in, in instances like Genesis chapter 15, God would come in and just graciously, out of mercy, assure him of this promise. Verses 5 through 6 of Genesis 15, I think we may have that one too, say this. And he brought him outside. The Lord brought Abraham outside. And it was nighttime when he did this. And he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, friends, if you read through the account of Abraham's life within the book of Genesis, you'll quickly see that his life was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He went through times of distrust. He went through times of frustration because he wanted to see the promise God had made him come to fruition, come about in his own timing, right? He even went as far as attempting to to force the promise of God to come about by having an illegitimate child with his wife Sarah's maidservant in chapter 16. And friends, there's a a sermon and a half I could preach right there, right? I mean, how many of us have such a hard time trusting in the promises of God, and so we try to control situations on our own terms, and all that gives us is is what? The, the, The promise? No. All that it gives us is is anxiety. It gives us just more fear. It gives us more problems. But I need to focus, okay? So even when Abraham struggled in his faith, 
God would come to him and restate and reaffirm the promise that he had already made to him, that he and Sarah would have a child, a child of promise, not born out of faithless strategies to make things work together on their own terms, but a child born from Sarah's womb out of the gracious fulfillment of God's promise. And so despite his struggles, Abraham learned, often the hard way, to trust God. He had to learn the hard way, faith. He learned through difficulties in trials to patiently wait on God. And then finally, in Genesis 21, he and Sarah, though she was 91 years old at this point, received that child of promise, received their son Isaac. And this is what the author of Hebrews is pointing to in our passage in verse 15, where it says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. After years of waiting, after hard-learned lessons of faith and patience, God began to fulfill the promise that he had made to Abraham so many years before. But looking back to our passage in Hebrews 6, it is important to see that verses 13 through 15 are actually pointing to a very specific moment in the life of Abraham. In Genesis 22, God actually puts the faith of Abraham to the test and commands him to offer up this this child, this, this child of promise, Isaac, up as a sacrifice. And having no idea how God would deliver him from the situation, but trusting his word completely and demonstrating the kind of faith that long years of perseverance had produced, Abraham prepared to offer up Isaac's life. But let me read to you what happened just as he is about to do this in verses 11 through 14 of Genesis 22. And I think we have the passage that you can kind of keep up along with me. And it says, The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Again, I'm struggling not preaching a whole sermon from just that, but... After this happened, in verses 16 through 17, God once again, once again, even though he didn't have to, but he once again renewed the promise that he had made to Abraham, but, but he adds a little something extra. He, he tags something on at the beginning of the promise. Take a look and see if you can spot it. He says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, And have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And here's the quote from Hebrews 6.14. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So friends, do you notice what is added here that wasn't present in chapter 15 or, or, or 12 of Genesis? God adds an oath 
to his promise. God adds an oath to his promise. That is what is meant in our passage in Hebrews by, by God swearing. By God swearing. It could be translated, God made an oath. If you, if you go back to, to Genesis 22, verses 16 through 17, at the very beginning, he could say, by myself I have sworn, or you could put in there, by myself I make an oath to you. God made an oath. Now, oaths in the, oaths in the Old Testament were a bit different than oaths that are taken in modern times. There were, there were no lengthy contracts or, or signatures or anything like that, and they were often verbal and sealed by giving your personal word, when your word used to mean something, right? Most of the time, when people in antiquity would make an oath, they would invoke the name of some greater person or being, whether it be a judge, a lawman, or, or even God himself, who would then dole out judgment on the person if they break the oath that they have made. Essentially, to make an oath was a significant thing because, as the Old Testament scholar Dennis Johnson says, to take an oath is to seal one's word with one's life. It was a big deal. You did not make oaths willy-nilly. Now we are told that God, when making this promise to Abraham, seals it with an oath. I hope you feel the implication there. But because there is no greater being than God Himself, as verse 13 says and verse 16 indicates, He invokes His own name to give the most final confirmation to Abraham that He possibly can of the promise he made him. Now, as we read all of this, we must come to understand something very, very important about the nature of this oath-backed promise that God made to Abraham. You see, when God spoke to Abraham and pointed to the multitude of stars in the night sky or the innumerable number of, of the grains of sand on the seashore to illustrate to Abraham the, the vast number of descendants that he will have, friends, the, the nation of Israel was not the final fulfillment of that promise. It was part of it, but not the final fulfillment. But... Who does Paul say in Galatians 3, 26 through 29 are the descendants of Abraham? Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Look at it with me. I think we have it on the screen. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. How amazing is that statement in and of itself? We are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are what? Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, heirs according to the promise. And so it's, it's, it's us, Christian, it's, it's us. We are the descendants. We are the heirs of Abraham according to the promise. And, and what promise is that? What promise is Paul talking about in Galatians 3? Let me read again to you Genesis 22. Because that's the promise. That's the promise. 
Let me read this again to you, but add verse 18 along with it as well. God said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The blessing of the nation that is spoken of here is that we, and when I mean we, I mean believers from from all around the world throughout history, believers from Ghana, from Egypt, from Chile, from Brazil, from Iran, from Nigeria, Mexico, and, and from countless other nations, we, through faith in Christ, become the people of God. How amazing is that? This is what Paul means in Romans 4.11, that Abraham is our father in faith. And though Abraham only saw the shadows of this wonderful truth, he was saved by faith, looking forward to the coming of Christ, through whom his promise would find its ultimate fulfillment. And so friends, we are his faith, Abraham's faith offspring, because like Abraham, We, too, are saved by faith, but by looking back at the first coming of Christ. And through faith, Christ's righteousness was given to Abraham, and it has been given to us. Now, praise God for that. How amazing, how wonderful is that? And so we, Christian, are now the heirs of the promise that was made to Abraham. We are the recipients of the blessing of the nations that was promised to him 4,000 years ago. Isn't that amazing? Abraham is given the honor of being the faith father of countless children. And this promise of God to Abraham is still being generously fulfilled today as more and more and more people come to faith in Christ. Man, I hope you see how amazing this is. I hope you see how wonderfully connected Scripture actually is. This is far and away from being able to to unhitch the Old Testament from our faith. Now, I want you to keep that awesome fact in mind as we go into verse 17 when you see the phrase, heirs of the promise. Okay? That is speaking of all believers, past, present, and future. Now read with me verse 17. It says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, and who is that? Us. To the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. Okay, there are a few things I want to break down here. The first is the purpose of the oath that God made. The purpose of it. Why did he make this oath? And this, again, is where I get pretty excited because we would be mistaken if we thought that the only reason why God made the oath to Abraham was to reassure him of his promise. To reassure just Abraham of this promise. But what does the author of Hebrews say here in verse 17? It says, when God wanted to show more convincingly to who? To the heirs of the promise. 
to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So do you, do you see what this is saying, friends? We serve a good and merciful and sympathetic God, right? Yes. Can, I, can I get an amen for that? Amen. If you don't want amen anything else in, in the entire sermon, you can amen that one. Well, he loved us. And because he knew the often weak state of our faith, because he knew there would be times when we would have dark moments, moments when we would wrestle with doubt, doubt about our salvation, and about the realness of our faith, because he knew we would have moments when we would, we would question, even, even just momentarily, that all of this was true. Because he knew we would be like Abraham. Because he knew we would wrestle with our faith. He did something that he had no obligation to do. He made an oath, swearing by his own name, for the simple purpose of assuring us of the unchanging character of his purpose. Friends, he did it to comfort you. He did it to encourage you. And we'll get to what the unchanging character of his purpose means in a moment. But friends, I hope you hang on to that truth because that oath God made was not simply to reassure Abraham it was to reassure you and I that His promise is true. To assure us the fact that we're told in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all of His promises, every single one that has ever been made to us, to His people, is yes and amen. So it wasn't for God's sake that He swore this oath. He didn't need to. It wasn't just for Abraham's sake, but it was for ours as well. Man, what a good God. What a loving God. What a sympathetic God we serve. Now, he wanted to show us more convincingly the unchanging character of his purpose. But, but what is his purpose? Very simply put, in the context of Genesis 22, it is the blessing of of the nations. It is to bless the nations. That has been his purpose from the very beginning, from the very beginning of the fall. He wanted to bless the nations, that through Abraham he would bless all of the nations of the earth. But more specifically, his purpose, the specifics of that blessing, is summed up in the word salvation. Right? Salvation. His purpose is to save a lost and sinful people and bring them into His family forever. Amen. And this is stated clearly in a passage that I've been drawn to a lot lately. Romans 8, 28-30. I can't seem to escape that passage. I don't want to, frankly. And it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And what is His purpose, friends? It says, for those 
God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so, friends, this, this is His purpose. That is His purpose right there, to save sinners and conform them to the image of His Son. How incredible is that? That's His purpose. And what is the nature of, what is, the, what is the character of this purpose? It's unchanging. It is unchanging. And God swore the oath to Abraham because He wanted you, believer, you specifically, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that His purpose for your life, which is to be conformed to the image of His Son, to be, to be sanctified, you could call it, to be justified and to be fully glorified, as Romans 8.29 adds, cannot and will not be changed. His purpose for your life, if you are in Christ Jesus, friends, it cannot be thwarted. It is un changing. And this means He wants you to have assurance of your salvation, to be sure. The author of Hebrews continues this line of thought on into verse 18. Let me start again with verse 17, going into verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 6. It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now first, the we who have fled for refuge, the, the we there means believers. But the we who have fled for refuge could mean Christians who had fled to God for refuge from a hostile world and persecution. Remember, there's a lot of persecution that is going on in the ancient church. Or it could mean Christians who have fled to God for refuge from sin and death. And either one of these, these possibilities works and does not change the meaning of the text or its applicability to, to you or I. But God desires for Christians who are fleeing to God for refuge, for, for whatever reason, to have a strong encouragement. A strong encouragement. Not a, not a weak encouragement, but a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us, to the salvation bought for us on the cross by Christ. But the encouragement, friends, doesn't just come out of nowhere. It doesn't just... just exist within us, but it comes as we cast our minds and hearts on these two unchangeables spoken of in verse 18. Now both of these unchangeables are actually described to us in verse 17. The first being the oath that God made that is tied to His very character. Verse 18 clearly states that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19 says the exact same thing, that God is not a man that He should lie. And remember, He is holy, holy, holy. And part of the holy nature of God is that moral perfection, that ultimate standard 
of what good and noble and right truly is. And that those things flow from his very being. And so friends, lying is antithetical to his very nature. It is abhorrent to him. And it is an impossible action for him to take. God's very unchanging character is assurance that his oath to Abraham and thus to us cannot and will not be broken. The second unchangeable is, as I said, also found in verse 17. The unchangeable nature of his purpose. And we already spoke to what this purpose is, but look at how God speaks of the certainty of accomplishing his own purpose in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. And it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, Whose counsel? My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. There's no maybe in that. There's no possibly in that. I will accomplish all my purpose. And God's purposes are unchanging, friends, because He is sovereign. Nothing can keep you or keep Him from accomplishing His purpose for you in Christ, which is, as Paul says in Philippians 1, seeing the work that He began in you at your new birth finished, come to completion. And so, friends, it is these two unchangeables that are to give us strong encouragement to hold fast to the glorious hope that is set before us. And before I get into how our passage this morning beautifully illustrates our hope, I don't want you to skim over what we just saw or what we just talked about here. What it is that is to be the source of our encouragement in regard to holding fast to our hope, to our faith, because, because far too often, friends, we as believers so often attempt to look inwardly to find encouragement or to find assurance of our faith. We so often look, look to ourselves and we become discouraged if we have an off week and we don't, or, or maybe we don't feel like we have a, a strong faith today. Or we measure our assurance by, by how free of, of all doubt we might feel. Either way, we base our assurance of faith on our own feelings. And we sometimes think that if we aren't feeling particularly strong in our faith today, then we just need to, we just need to try to faith harder. You know what I mean? But Christian, if this is what you are doing, if you are thinking to yourself, boy, I'm really struggling with whether or not I'm really saved right now, so I need to close my eyes and just try to muster up more faith in my, my faith tank, friends, you are like a dehydrated man thinking that he will find water in the desert. So friends, if you have truly placed your faith in Christ, if you have repented of your sin and love the Jesus of the Scriptures and desire to serve Him, then brothers and sisters, 
then the assurance of your salvation will not be found looking inward. But friends, it will be found looking upward. It will be found by looking to God in the unbreakable oath that He has made to you. That is where your assurance is found. Oh, friends, how how wonderful is it that our faith, by the grace of God, will continue to grow throughout our life like Abraham. That's the trajectory that all true Christians are on. They, they, They are sanctified. They grow in their faith. But we will, we will have moments of of strong and wavering faith, but we will also have moments of weak faith that is full of doubt. But though my faith may wax and wane, and though our feelings will change more often than the weather, God's promise to you remains the same. His promise of salvation is just as much yours when you feel like you have a little bit of faith as it is when you feel like you have a lot of faith. And that is because your salvation is not dependent on your feelings, Christian. It is dependent on God's unchanging work. And so, believer, I I encourage you to look to these unchangeables that are rooted in the very character of God if you want the encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is yours forever, to the hope that has been set before you. Now, the hope that we do have, as verses 19 through 20 say, is a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now, this means that our hope is Christ. Simply put, our hope is Christ, who took on the role of our representative, who entered into the presence of God the Father. That's what the behind the curtain means. Who entered into the presence of God the Father and offered His own blood to free us from and forgive us of our sins. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling as our king and serving as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which the author will explain in much more detail in the next chapter. But notice here that the author says that Jesus entered into the inner place behind the curtain, which again is a reference to the very presence of God the Father, as a forerunner on our behalf. And it's important to note that the author didn't simply say, He entered behind the curtain on our behalf. That's that's not all it says. But as a forerunner on our behalf. What does this imply, believer? That's right. That's right. Implying that we are eventually to follow. And friends, this indicates such a wonderful and special component to the hope that is set before us. Because yes, our hope is synonymous to His promise that we have been talking about this whole time. It is synonymous to salvation from sin and being made fully into the image of Christ and being totally and completely free from sin and temptation in the life that is to come. And and yes, it is being totally glorified, even, even in the new resurrection bodies that we will receive when Christ comes again. Those, those new bodies at the resurrection will be completely glorified. But arguably, the greatest part of our inheritance, our blessing, our promise, 
friends, is going where Jesus went as a forerunner. It is going behind the curtain into the inner place where the unveiled presence of God resides. And so, friends, simply put, the true glory of the hope that is set before us, as we have said many times, is going to be resting in the presence of God Himself and seeing Him face to face and having every doubt, every fear, every uncertainty, every, every disease, all of it banished from us as His hand reaches up to wipe away the last tear that we will ever cry. And what a hope we have in Jesus. What a hope we have in Him. And friends, that, that is the hope that verse 19 says is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. This anchor of hope that doesn't, that doesn't reach into the depths of the sea, but, but rather reaches up into the very courtrooms of heaven, keeps us from drifting when the oceans of this life feels chaotic or terrifying or disorienting. But sadly, we so often attempt to make our anchor other things, don't we? I liken it to the disciples in Matthew 8 when they are crossing the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes out of nowhere and threatens to capsize the boat. And while the disciples panicked, Jesus did what? Slept. He slept. But why did Jesus sleep when the disciples panicked? I think for a couple reasons, but, but one of them being that Jesus knew and trusted in the plan of His Father. He knew that nothing could happen to him that would thwart his road to the cross. And so why should he fear? And so he slept peacefully in the storm, in an unexpected storm, the passage says, no less. Friends, how amazing is it that that could actually be us? That could be us, right? Sleeping peacefully in the middle of life's storm, whether they are storms we knew were coming or storms that blindsided us. Because we know, we know, and we trust in the oath-backed promises made to us by the unchanging great I Am. That could be us. What if we stopped making control the anchor of our lives? What would happen? What if we stopped making our spouse or our friends or our earthly security or our health or our finances that which we attempted to anchor our souls to? Because, friends, how shaky are we when we do make those things the anchor of our souls? How fearful do we get? How, how anxious, how depressed, how untrusting, how angry, how spiteful, how, how sad do we get? And how often and how far do we drift from God? But Christian, what if the hope set before you actually was your true anchor for your soul? How sure and steadfast would you be? How joyful, how forgiving, how trusting of God, how content would you be? How peaceful would you be if, like Christ, you set your mind on His promises, 
Not on the things of this earth, but on His promises. Promises like we read in Romans 8.28 that all things, all things, even the most dreadful storms of life, even the, even the illnesses, even, even the, the sicknesses, even the deaths and tragedies, even the stubbed toe, everything, all things, work for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. What a peace that would be for our troubled hearts if we believe that promise. And so, friends, don't trade. Friends, I, I implore you, I beg of you, don't trade your heavenly anchor for an earthly one. Our anchor of hope is sure and steadfast because it is tied to the one who has given us his oath that we, his children, like Abraham, will, will receive the totality of what we hope in. Our complete salvation, both body and soul. And so, brothers and sisters, let us imitate our brother and father of the faith, Abraham. And with our eyes focused on Jesus, let us wait patiently and faithfully to obtain our promise in full. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are not only the creator and king of this universe, Lord, but that you are a merciful, loving, and sympathetic high priest who paid the price for our sin with your blood. That through faith and repentance we could, Lord, we could share in your inheritance. That we could share in the promise that you made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. Lord, that we could share in the hope that is set before us. And so, Lord, I know that, that we're going to have mountaintops of faith. But I also know that we are going to have valleys of faith. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us not find our encouragement in our own feelings, but that we find our encouragement to hold fast to that hope that belongs to us, that is promised to us by you, that is sworn to us by you. Help us hold fast to those things. Help us find encouragement in those promises and those oaths, not in how we feel. Lord, we love you. And I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.